I slept funny the other night and my neck is still a little bit sore if I turn it a certain way. Uh, yeah. It's fine. We're young. We're hip. <laughs> Lit. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hi, guys. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today, we're going to learn about a 1920s performer and a woman who knows all about the quirks. If you don't know what quirks are, you got to keep listening. <laughs> all right. Your person's really quirky, and mine is just really queer. Oh, This is going to be fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a dear. Okay. So, uh, I'm going to let you go first this time. All right. Well, shit's like super heavy right now. So, I mean, what? We've got a bumbling vindictive administration. <laughs> We've got hundreds of thousands dead from COVID-19. And then this is an upside, like nationwide protests against police brutality, systematic racism. Yay. Shitty we even have to do that shit. Mm. I mean, I like to think some good will come of this. I don't know. That's why... Given the opportunity for today's episode, I covered a woman in a tux. Is she always in a tux? You know what? If I imagine hard enough, she is. Because <laughs> if that's what helps me get through this, then maybe there's someone else out there and it'll help you get through this as well. Imagination. Yes. So that's what I'm doing. Something a little escapist today. Kind of. A little bit. So yeah, we are covering 1920s jazz performer and vocalist and pianist Gladys Bentley. I've never heard of this woman. I just want to say this season I have branched out. And as much as I personally would have liked, like I could have done 100% sculptor so far. And I still could. But I'm not going to. Trying to creep a little bit more into the performing arts. So today... We've got one of the leading performers of their day, pianist, singer, and gender-bending performer, Gladys Bentley, a leading figure in the 1920s New York City Harlem nightlife. That's cool. Yeah. Awesome. Today, it's going to be fun. It's a fun story. She's got this, like, great, bolsterous personality, and I feel like, Milana, like, you and her totally would have been buddies, and, like, even more so if you got her to do shots of tequila. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, I get the impression uh, she wouldn't say no. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I need a tequila buddy since you've, you've been old ladying out for a while now. I have a lovely cup of tea with chamomile <laughs> and a hint of hibiscus right now. So back off with your accusations. You'll be asleep in an hour. It's fine. <laughs> you suck. Um, Continue. Whatever. All right. So... I've got a little bit on Gladys's early years. Like, we know she was born in 1907 in, in Philly. That's what's up. Uh, most likely a working class family. She was the oldest of four kids. Do you know her parents' name? George. And then her mom, Mary. She was from Trinidad. And Gladys remarks that she had an unhappy childhood. 
Oh, no. Which, I mean, that's, like, no surprise since her parents were really concerned about her attraction to other girls. And like a lot of families out there, I think they were really hopeful that Gladys would outgrow the gay. Uh, excuse, excuse me? Are we talking like like six or seven? Are we talking like she's like 17 and they're still like, this is just a phase? I mean, like I mentioned, I really don't have a lot of fine de- I don't have any fine details mm. on her early ages, so... Honestly, anything prior to 16, I have no idea. Oh. I just know that her parents were very aware that she was attracted to, to girls. And they were like, gee, we really hope it's just a phase and she outgrows it. And she doesn't. No. Well, okay, maybe she does, but we'll, we'll talk about that <laughs> in a little bit. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but for now, Gladys is a frustrated, creative kid. She puts her energy into her music and she focuses on songwriting and playing the piano. And when she's 16, it's 1923, Gladys is like, Mom, Dad, see you later. I'm going to New York City. So she, like, plans to make it big. And she does. Yeah. Like, I know where this is going. <laughs> yeah. No, I just, it's still, like, like, she was just 16 years old. I was like, I'm just going to go make it big. And she fucking does. And I will never have an ounce of the confidence that 16-year-old her had. <laughs> I was just super impressed. I was like, I'm almost twice that age now, and I still don't. Still don't have that. I mean, honestly, New York at this time, that's the place to be. I mean, I know we love Philly, but for, like, this time in New York City, it just had way more to offer for a queer, young black woman in the 1920s. Right. Harlem was the place to be. It's a neighborhood, like, northwest of uh, the northern part of Central Park in Manhattan. And we've got the Great Migration going on, so basically southern black people are, like, getting the fuck out. And a good many settled in Harlem, and that became a hub of, like, not only like this African-American community, but it was a really rich creative scene that sparked the Harlem Renaissance. Right. And I think we, we touched on that a couple of episodes ago, right? Early on, actually. Seventh episode? That's that's come up in quite a few episodes. Yeah. Because um, we've had people who have sometimes been directly involved or indirectly or influenced by. So, I mean, it's, it's contributed a lot creatively. Right. I mean, historically, I thought this was interesting. So the Harlem Renaissance is how we refer to it. But at the time, it was known as the New Negro Movement. And basically, it's just centering on African-American identity. So we've had these people who are fresh from the horrors of World War I who have fought for this country only to return and be treated like shit. Mm. And I mean, we're not too far from how they were treated then, how no. people are treated now. Mm-mm. But that division, it, it really sparked these conversations and examinations into identity and community. And for the writers and artists banding together in Harlem... Their resolve was to celebrate their blackness, which, you know, challenges racism and stereotypes in the process. As a whole, it resulted in this very creatively rich community that had a lot to offer. And that was really great for Gladys. And even better, since the Harlem Renaissance was, like, super gay. (laughs) I I had no idea. (laughs) I mean, I guess because we've, we've covered more people, like, in who've been indirectly involved with it. Right. It was, they were, it was super gay. I was pleasantly surprised. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, An African-American scholar, Henry Louis Gates, he quoted, uh, he's quoted as saying, it was gay as it was black. No. no. Just in case you weren't sure. (laughs) In case there was any doubt. (laughs) There's a lot you can examine within this that I'm not necessarily going to break down, but there's some really good books out there examining, like, sexuality and queerness 
in relation to the Harlem Renaissance and all these intersections um, that we'll have up on the show notes. But um, for now, I'm just kind of sticking to Gladys's story. But yeah, I, I had no idea. But for our young Gladys, she settled in Harlem and she took up work right away and essentially these like house parties. Mm. There'd be, you know, cover charge and then live music and drinks and, you know, sometimes like gambling going on. Uh, it was pretty steady work. It doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but the kicker is it was during Prohibition. Mm, okay. Yeah. So drinks been outlawed since 1920. Mm-hmm. It's 1923 when she shows up. Mm-hmm. And it's like this whole network of house parties that are just kind of skirting the law. But for Gladys, they also offer access to another network. One catering to the queer side of the Harlem community with their whole network of sexy gay house parties. Ooh. I mean, it was it was a great place for her to be. Yeah. <laughs> she was definitely making At the most At the age of, of like uh, 16, 17. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, there was another singer, uh, like a contemporary of her day called Mabel Hampton. And she said, quote, New York is a good place to be a lesbian. You learn so much, and you see so much. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, so I have a feeling Gladys is not the only young lady there making the most of it. No. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, like, from the start, she's like, yep, sorry, Philly, you ain't got shit on this. Yeah. Now, eventually, Gladys moved from house parties to formal clubs, mm. and this is where the tuxedos come in. So from the start, Gladys, she was raunchy. So an author who wrote about sexuality during the Harlem Renaissance, mm-hmm. Jim Wilson, he noted how Gladys combined two popular songs of the day and made them about anal sex. Oh! And, okay, like, I don't know what the lyrics are before oh, you why? ask. Oh, why? Okay, come on, keep going. I want to hear the lyrics. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I, like... Oh, my God. I'm sorry. It's pandemic. I'm broke right now. I unfortunately did not have the money to go out and buy his book. Oh, my God. But it's out there, and you can find it. Yeah, all I know is that the songs are Sweet Alice Blue Gown and Georgia Brown. Oh, God. You'll have to get creative yourself. Sorry. <laughs> I know. I knew that was going to be a point of disappointment. I'm sorry. Oh, man. Okay. Just I'm make good. up your own ditty about anal sex. You're creative. You can do it. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. See? I got this. See? This is why you and Gladys would be friends. <laughs> you really would. And, I mean, very quickly, she was, like, the main attraction for the shows. And she says that she got her start in clubs when she auditioned for the position of a male pianist. And she said about it, quote, I finally convinced him. My hands flew over the keys. And when I had finished my first number, the burst of applause was terrific. Yes. Yeah, I didn't... There's no recordings of her playing, which, like, visuals, like, there's no there's no movies of her recording, uh, which I think would be absolutely amazing, because it, it sounds like cool. she put on some amazing shows. <laughs> and, I mean, from all means, she was, she was a very powerful piano player. Uh, and then when she would sing, she would belt out these, like, kind of gravelly, deep lyrics from, you know, her large frame. And then she, she would even, like, imitate, like, a, a horn or a trumpet. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean... I'm not going to try to do it because I'm not musically inclined. I'm not great with the horn, okay? <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I just your accent was just slightly off. 
Well, that she was she was really good at that, and you can actually listen to some of her stuff on Spotify. Yes. Yeah, you, you can listen to her stuff on Spotify. It doesn't fully capture just the power of the work she did, but I mean, it's it's something. But I mean, she really knew how to enthrall an audience, and she just had a great stage presence. She'd like saunter around the room, you know, performing, and she'd flirt with all the women. Mm. And all the while, she would be in like a flawless top hat and like a suit. I love her. Just, just singing the blues. I love her. Yeah, and a lot of the times it was just like a white tuck set too. Really? Ooh. That's like, that's classy. That's like next level. Super classy. And again, super confident. What if you spill some ketchup on that? I I wouldn't dare. Wouldn't even try. Yeah, so she'd just be in her tuck set just singing the blues. And like a main point of attraction for her shows was her gender fluidity. Mm. On stage and off, like she cultivated this personality at the term of the time was a bull dagger she wore men's clothes and that's where gladys deviated from other singers now there was a significant pocket of like queer women blues singers Mm -hmm. people like bessie smith and ma rainey and these are major musicians who made a lot of contributions to the blues and for what it is today to different degrees they weren't quite as open about their sexuality but i mean gladys was really fluid in how she presented it i mean keep in mind it's 1920s early 1930s being out is a big deal oh yeah for sure i mean they are kind of in this unique liberal pocket in harlem Mm -hmm. but i mean still you're still at risk i mean one thing that did insulate gladys and the others from backlash was in part the money that they were bringing in so prohibition's going on uh but within harlem the police they're kind of looking the other way Mm -hmm. and because of that the neighborhood becomes a destination of sorts for a lot of uh white people to come to see a show to have some drinks and just enjoy themselves and kind of like relax a little bit and see something a little, like, risque. So because of that, Gladys is putting on show. And one of the most major figures from the Harlem Renaissance, Langston Hughes, he remarked about her, quote, As amazing exhibition of musical energy, a large, dark, masculine lady whose feet pounded the floor while her fingers pounded the keyboard, a perfect piece of African sculpture animated by her own rhythm. Oh, man. Yeah. That, like, really sums her up. I mean... Yeah. You have these people within the community and coming from out just to have a drink, to see a show, and I, she is delivering. <laughs> She's got you covered. <laughs> yeah. Um, at this one club she headlined at, it was advertised her show as a cast of 30. She had a cast of elaborately dressed flamboyant like men as dancers. <laughs> yes. I want a video of that. I really want to see that. I mean, come on. This would make an amazing movie or TV series. I know. Why haven't we ever heard of her? Exactly. And then at, like, the height of her popularity during this period, she apparently was living on Park Avenue with a team of servants, driving a luxury car, paying the equivalent of, like, five grand a month in rent. What? Yeah. She was making bank. What? Yep. (gasps) Wow. And... She did a few recordings of her music. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not like the best quality, but she was more concerned on playing clubs. That was what she was really into. Mm. So she would tour clubs. She had lined up places like the Apollo Theater uh, and even at like a white only club called the Cotton Club. Uh, oh, oh, oh. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I just, there are so many levels to that. I know. I know. I mean, I just was like, I'm just going to move over this. And it's weird with these clubs because. Yeah, they're these African American performers are getting paid, 
you could say they're technically profiting off spreading like black culture but at the same time it's the fucking segregated racist club it just systematic oppression yeah but like on an individual level as a performer i was just like what how like how yeah i i have a feeling she was probably like i'm gonna take their fucking money yeah (laughs) so jumping back in um so i mean even if she's playing at clubs that are um completely racist she's playing at them she's making money off of it now lyrically she did have fun with her singing i mean like i said she could be very raunchy uh, she would riff on popular songs, you know, kind of inserting in her own smutty lyrics. But she'd also use them as a chance to call out bullshit, too. So in one song, Worried Blues, Gladys sings, quote, What made you men folk treat us women like you do? Mm. I don't want no man that I gotta give my money to. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, it's like almost 100 years later. That shit's still true. Still very true. Yep. It's gross. I like her. And one thing that's kind of, you know... Uh, I don't want to say fun about blues, but like an element of it is that's that's quite common. Kind of p- call out that bullshit. Mm. Uh, so she had she did share that in common with other blues singers of the day. Just that she was usually a lot more raunchier. As you might have surmised based off her personality, she was a bit of celebrity in her day. And uh, she would encourage the rumor mills. <laughs> Gotta keep things going a bit. Yeah. <laughs> So there was one bit where the newspapers were like, Gladys, Gladys, is it true? Did you get married? And she was like, yes. It's a white lady. (laughs) Yeah, she knew how to keep them talking. Uh, (laughs) Yep. Um, So like her strong persona, it inspired three different writers to base characters off of her. Oh, that's awesome. Who are the characters? Um, I only found one, and it's uh, a Carl Van Betchen in his book Parties, although I'm not quite sure what character it is. Mm. I'm told it's a bit of a voyeuristic look into um, Harlem during that period from a outside white guy's perspective. Oh. So. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Maybe not. I was like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. That's the only explicit example I have in terms of this. Yeah. Thanks, internet. Um, (laughs) But it's pretty cool because Gladys, she was just one of the many artists who helped contribute to the growing queer community in New York City. Like, acts like hers, they really increase the popularity to these queer clubs and these, you know, queer-friendly places. And that, in terms, supported these openly gay clubs kind of down the line. Like, at the same time, homosexuality is, like, still punishable by law and police are raiding clubs. We've got these super popular drag balls going on that are, like, the event of the year. Re- researching, I'm like, I just don't understand because it just seems super flaming liberal at times. And other times, you've got, like, the Irish cops who might, like, beat you on the corner of the street. What? And you know what? Like, people, what, 80 years from now are going to look back at what we're doing and probably just be just as confused. That is a whole other doozy. <laughs> I'm just going to skip over um yeah so harlan played host to the largest national drag ball uh called the grand order of the odd fellows and there would be 100 performers like men and women alike and uh, thousands of people would attend i mean this is the history that a show like rupaul's drag race is built on now things did start to slow down for gladys in the late 1930s okay keep in mind she's only in her late 20s 
Oh, oh no. Is she is she dead by her 30s? Okay, no. No, not exactly. Things did start to go downhill for Gladys. I mean, more in terms just because prohibition ended. So because of that, people didn't quite have to go to Harlem in particular to get a cocktail on a show. Right. So, I mean, audiences were shifting, but then also to uh, attitudes as well. Things were starting to lean a little bit more conservative. So in 1937, at the age of 30, Gladys moves out to California, eventually settling in where else but San Francisco. (laughs) I was like, well, there's no surprise there. Uh, Now, initially, she actually had stopped in L.A., but she um, there was an incident with the police when she was performing at a club and um, she was wearing pants. So they gave her hell about that. What? Because she's a woman. Wearing pants. She was performing. Wearing pants, yeah. Uh, So that was a no-no. So she moved up to San Francisco. So very large queer community out there, even for that time. Gladys, she had a a good bit of venues to choose from for who she wanted to work with. So she picked Mona's 440 Club. And that was the first openly gay lesbian club in San Francisco. And that's where she's primarily working out of. You know, she is touring to other clubs. But, like, overall, it's just, it's not... It's not the same as New York. It's never the same as New York. <sighs> no, it's just she kind of had to slowly start censoring her acts. Mm. And I mean, part of it was wearing, it started with her wearing skirts during her shows. And I mean, that only increased that self-censorship as the 1940s progressed. I mean, post-World War II, we've got super conservative, heteronormative everything uh, across the nation. Make it stop. Yeah, like super... <laughs> Super leave it to Beaver. I mean, that that was the narrative being pushed nationally. And Gladys, over time, she shifted her persona to meet essentially what American society would deem appropriate for an African-American woman. So, I mean, the first thing to go was the tux. Well, I mean, get rid of being queer. Oh, yeah. Did she have to marry a man? Oh, she married a man, didn't she? Okay, well, so Gladys wrote an Ebony magazine about a life, her life change. There's like a photo spread. She's pictured as a married woman to a man who enjoys domestic things like cooking and cleaning. And she's even undergone hormonal treatment to make her a full woman. Ah. Yes. Okay. Uh, Because up to this point, she's, she's presented herself as very butch, very masculine. Yes. And has been completely unabashed about that. And so Gladys was a master of her persona. So the same year that that essay was published in 1952, she's 45, she also conveniently signed a recording contract deal. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in my unprofessional opinion, I think she was a player who knew how to play the game. And she fucking did. Oh, fuck yeah. I think her spread in Ebony Magazine, which is like a very well-circulated um, well one, right, was a way of her being like, hey, look, everyone, I'm totally normal. You should sign me to your record label and give me that money. Mm. And they did. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. So, bit of a twist. I really hope that is legitimately the way it was. It actually slated. But, like, I, I really do think so. Because, like, going into the 1950s, we've got the Red Scare. 
And Mr. Dickhole Senator McCarthy is going around declaring that anyone who's not a good Christian is a commie. And that's like almost everyone. Fuck that guy. Especially the queer folk. Yes. So I think changing her persona, it was just another way for Gladys to protect herself against that. Right. Because, I mean, a lot of people were going up against the Un-American Committee. Mm-hmm. Like, charges brought against them for, you know, are you a commie? Goddamn commie. Which one are you? Are you both? You're both. I, I mean, that's why, like, a lot of people from L.A., they just went, they went to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know we cover Elizabeth uh, Catlett. I mean, she was initially from New York, but, I mean, she was like, fuck this shit. I'm going to Mexico. I'm going to make art down there. Yeah. There was a point the United States was like, well, fine, you can't come back. And she was like, fine, I won't come back. And they were like, <laughs> fine. Actually, it's been like 10 years. You, you can come back. She was like, fine. I, I actually have a solo show, so that works out well. It's actually in Harlem, actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I wish I knew what episode that was offhand, but you guys should listen if you good, already haven't. Good summary. Um, <laughs> yep. My rendition of like a 15-year legal battle between American <laughs> sculptor and American government. Um, so like like a good many of us, I think State Farm Gladys did mellow out. What's that? Sorry, what? Gladys did mellow out. Um, we really don't know that much about her later years. There's not much written record on it. I do know at the age of 51, she wrote an autobiography, but unfortunately it was not published. Bit of a bummer. That was in 1958. And then two years later, well, she was training to become a Christian minister. She did pass away from complications of the flu. She, hey, she's a, she was Christian this entire time? I think she might have found religion a little later in her years. Uh, I don't know. Things things are a little spotty. I mean, what a cool-ass minister. Yeah, she would have been pretty tight. Yeah. <laughs> she would have been super fun. Oh, my God. She would not have needed a microphone at all. I bet she no. could have just, like, kind of belted everything <laughs> out. Oh, I'm sorry she passed away, like, before she was able to reach that. I, yeah, I mean, and again, she was only 53. She was really young. Jesus. Yeah. Um. So that was a bit of a bummer. But even though compared to some other individuals that I've covered where there's a lot more um, biographical information available, I'm still really happy with what I was able to come across right. for Gladys. Especially considering in my lovely encyclopedia set of uh, women in world history, I, I'd come across her name elsewhere and it was like, oh, I bet there's an entry of, about her in this series. So I... You know, I, I pull out the book. I open it up. There's a fucking paragraph. Jesus. I was like, her picture is bigger than the actual text they have entered. Oh, no. Yeah. Time forgot I was her. Like, I was like, surprise, surprise. My world encyclopedia said it's let me down on a not white woman. Mm. Yeah. So I was able to find informational sources elsewhere, which is really nice. So I'm looking at pictures of her now. Ah, she's one handsome woman. I love it. Oh, there's the, there's the, there's the Ebony article of her and her husband. Oh my goodness. Yeah. She was in like a, oh, like a house apron and everything. Oh no. Oh no. Oh man. I just, I like to think as she was like posing for those pictures and everything, she was like, I'm going to get a record deal. I'm going to get a record deal. Did she actually marry him or was it just like? I'm not sure. 
So there was actually another man she claimed to also have been married to at one point, and that guy just straight up denied it and was like, "Uh uh-uh. So that's why there's questions as to whether or not that 1950s article she published was just essentially for show, for her to kind of regain control and redirect her public persona. I love her so much. She's not going to be my new imaginary friend. (sighs) She'd be like that new imaginary friend on your shoulder being like, Milena, do another shot of tequila. (laughs) I'd be like, wait a minute. Yeah, like four other imaginary friends on that same shoulder. You're all saying do a shot of tequila. (laughs) Now help me out, guys. One collective shot of tequila or four individual shots of tequila? (laughs) And they just give you like the eyeball and you're like, all right, sorry, guys, I shouldn't have to ask. All right, line them bitches up. (laughs) Uno, dos, tres, cuatro. That is not the type of imaginary friends you need in your life, Milana. But not right now. That's the kind of me I am. So it's perfect. I exactly. <laughs> Can there be an imaginary Megan on your other shoulder with a cup of tea, just slowly shaking her head in disappointment? I mean, like, Milana, come on. I, this is like rose hips with like a touch of hibiscus. And there's also some peppermint in there, too. It smells lovely. Come on. No, no. No, no. I don't drink dirt water. Oh, my God. You are terrible. You and your brother, both of you. <laughs> Tea is sacred. Talk to me when you're 64. Then you might change your mind. Tequila. <laughs> so my lady probably wouldn't back me up on four shots of tequila. <laughs> you know what? Somehow I feel like particle physicist might be a little bit of a downer. Yeah. I mean, no, she was she's she's still like she looks smiley. Oh shit. Do we have another live one? We have another live one. <laughs> okay, cool. I only enjoy doing people who are dead. Melina occasionally likes to mix things up a little bit. <laughs> she's uh she's kicking butt still. Um Okay, cool. Good. Yeah. Good. So, I'm going to tell you about a woman named Shirley Ann Jackson. Is that not actually just what your grandmother's name is? Shirley Ann Jackson? No. Shirley, what's her middle name? I am the worst granddaughter. You don't know. That's okay. (laughs) Okay, it's Shirley Ann Jackson. She was born August 5th, 1946 in Washington, D.C., uh, she was a science kid early on. She would observe the interaction of bees in her backyard, which, by the way, this society and interaction of bees, fascinating. Fascinating. But I won't I won't get into it now. <laughs> That's another episode. That's another episode. That's our bonus Patreon episode, if we ever make one. <laughs> I just, I was listening to a bee uh, science episode from Ologies, and it was riveting. It's fine. It's about to spoiler alert. Your bonus Patreon content for your B episode is actually just five minutes me and going. And so concludes my rendition of a worker bee. Now I'm going to do the queen bee. Now here's here's the difference between the two. Now listen for the pitch. Okay. All right. And go. Yeah. No, no. Bees are great. Like, socially, they're pretty great. Don't kill them. Love them. I was about to say, I was just thinking how they're slowly, not so slowly dying off, actually. But yeah, okay. 
give them space and love, I might actually get a plot of land up on the garden. Anyway, uh, yeah, so she was into science early on. And like many of the African-American women I've already covered, she was encouraged by her parents to stick to her education. So one thing that some people don't realize is that racism is in every corner of our country. So police brutality is being highlighted right now. But when people say it's systematic, we mean systematic, not just in our. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I have to throw that out there. (laughs) Okay, like when we started this podcast. I was like, all right, cool. We're going to get to learn about so many people. All right, cool. Let me get this encyclopedia set just filled with women. Okay, cool. Um, White woman, white woman, white woman, white woman, white woman. In the goddamn encyclopedia books. Yep. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yep. Not just in our yep. police system slaughtering people, but in our policies about voting and who receives our health care, in our history classes and books, in our education systems. Um, so, I mean, it again, everywhere. So the landmark case of Brown versus Board of Education, which is also the case that Mammy Phipps Clark from episode three testified in with her child psychology work, uh, that particular case had passed when Shirley was eight. So the schools were integrated, but the resources for the education of the nation's children were nowhere near to feed up equally between the schools that were predominantly white and the schools that were predominantly black. Um, okay, yo, they still are. Exactly. It hasn't changed even today. Uh, So the loophole here was that if she and her family pushed hard enough, like really hard, she now theoretically had access to advanced programs. So it's really no wonder that her parents, Beatrice and George Jackson, who lived through the blatant racism before that time, would do anything in their power to lift her child up in education. And again, she knocked it out of the park. She was in accelerated science and math programs, graduated valedictorian in 1964 from Roosevelt Senior High School, and began her classes at MIT that same year. What? Nice. Yes. So there were fewer than 20 black people in her class, and she was the only one studying theoretical physics. So theoretical physics is literally just another name for the physics Emmy Noda from the last episode was working in and helped pioneer. So not the exact thing she did. Not the exact thing she did because she was working. Emmy was working in several dimensions and black holes. However, theoretical physics is such a broad term that can be applied to anything in the universe. So as a reminder for those who didn't listen to the episode or having a hard time, physics and math, both tangible and abstract, can be used to explain and predict natural phenomena in the universe. So... Black holes, how objects move in space, the speed of a pole dancer on her pole in relation to how far out her leg is from the pole. Uh, And in Shirley Jackson's case, it's applied to the existence, properties, and behaviors of subatomic particles in electronic and nuclear applications. Yeah, that was real smooth. You're a little tricky bitch. (laughs) You're like, yeah, imagine me spinning on my pole. Ooh, look at my leg thing. Uh Yeah, you like it. And particle physicist, yes. (laughs) Gotta gotta flashy with the legs. (laughs) Yep. Stay with me. We're here. We're here for the ride. We're listening. We're in this together. (laughs) Her bachelor's degree specified in solid state physics in crystals, studying the way the subatomic particles moved and reacted throughout the layers of them. Uh, She graduated in 1968 and then continued on to grad school. She stayed at MIT for her doctoral work in elementary particle theory and nuclear physics. Again, 
She's studying particles and materials in different states, but specifically how they react with each other in the presence of radiation and electromagnetics. By 1973, she was the second African-American woman in the United States that earned a Ph.D. in physics, following a woman named Willie Hobbs Moore, who graduated with her Ph.D. just one year before that. So Was she also at MIT? No. I can't remember where she was. Okay. Yeah. She was at a different program. Okay. So, Shirley's choice to stay at MIT was very simple. You see, when she was an undergrad, people generally didn't speak to her, wouldn't work with her, would eat their food quickly in the cafeteria and leave because she was there, because she was African-American. Okay, to be fair, I imagine the gender breakdowns, there might have been a lot of people in the cafeteria going, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, guys, it's a girl, it's a girl. No. I can't. No. I, I can't make eye contact. I can't. I don't know. I know we practice in the dorm room. I just, I can't. No. <laughs> I wish. I know. I wish I know. that Wouldn't was the case. Wouldn't it be so sweet if that's what it was mm. and not horrific racism? No. Because she, unfortunately, there was a, an actual story where she ended up walking up to a couple of girls who were working on their problem sets in the same class and she was like, I know how to do these problem sets. Would you mind if I come work with you? And they were like, you can go away now. Hmm. Yeah. So it was unfortunately not that. When she decided to continue her education, she, quote, wasn't going to give people the satisfaction of getting me to walk away. Yeah, I know you can't see me nodding right now, but yeah. I mean. <laughs> Uh, she was going to use her grad student status to organize MIT's Black Student Union. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. You're like, I'm big, bad, PhD student. Fuck off. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's not a, not a bad attitude to have. So the group that she organized would demand more African-American recruits, financial support and quality of life changes for the students, and more minority staff. Uh, MIT then created a task force and asked Jackson to be on it. So her first year as a PhD student was spent studying and traveling across the Midwest as a recruiter for the university. So her work helped raise the number of African-American students from 2 to 57 in the first year alone. Okay. Those are good numbers. Right? I mean, <laughs> I don't know all the numbers. Yeah. You don't know what the two full to one. anything more than that. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's great. Yeah. So she was very focused on... Uh, like, opening up opportunities for other African-American individuals who wanted to be there. I forget the name of a mathematician that you did that worked on NASA's rocket propulsion system. Annie Easley. Annie Easley. It seemed like she was really similar in really advocating advancing educational opportunities for people who come after her. And realizing how difficult it was to go through it initially right. and be like, I shouldn't have had to deal with this. I'm going to make sure personally no one else has to deal Correct. with this. Yeah. Yeah. And I just I just find that's so commendable because so many people would just be like, no, like. Just get in and get out. I got treated like crap. Yeah. I'm going to get through this and I'm going to get out <laughs> and I'm going to move on. Yeah. No. These, these were women who are like, no, this is not okay and I'm going to change it any way that I can. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So once they found their way into the university, she continued the support by creating a summer program called Project Interface, where she tutored the arriving undergrads. The program actually still exists today. Okay, yeah. sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, academics, they come to an end. So once she graduated and left, she began her postdoctoral work as a research assistant at uh, Fermi National Accelerator Lab in Illinois, known as Fermi Lab. It's a United States Department of Energy national lab, and it is the big bad here. Like, 
anyone who knows radiation knows Fermi. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so funny. Okay, what... Is it Fermi? All right, we all have to remember so we can casually drop it to our Fermi. nuclear physicist friends. <laughs> Please casually drop it to my dad. <laughs> the nuclear physicist. The nuclear. I totally will. <laughs> it's Fermi? Is that what you said? Yeah, Fermi National Lab. Yeah. There, she studied hadrons. So you can go ahead and make your hard-on joke now. I mean, I'm an adult and I wasn't going to go there. But, I mean, now that you said something... <laughs> We're all imagining a penis. Thanks, Milena. Yeah, you're welcome. Who's the mature one now? <laughs> Thanks. Never me. <laughs> Between the two of us, I'm always the immature one. <laughs> oh, yeah, she studied specific kinds of subatomic particles. And her favorite thing was to see how they interacted with each other in electromagnetic and nuclear settings. I mean, naturally, I was dying to know. <laughs> So she just is she just really interesting in examining how these subatomic particles relate or don't relate to one another given the environmental um, conditions they're put under and stressors. Yes, that one. Okay, cool. But you've covered a lot of scientists recently who seem to you know there's it's more bio- biological matter under their microscope, but I imagine it's almost a similar experience on such a small level of like be it these organic oh for sure matters for sure and how they relate. It just happens hers are, you know, just, oh, look at that. They're subatomical. <laughs> I love you. But it sounds like examining them under yeah. different environmental circumstances yeah. is, you know, be it you have an organic sample or not, it's it's a very similar principle. You want to see what's up. So, I mean, I have a quote, basically, that it's just a bunch of really long angry scientific words that involve the words magnetic polarons and semi-magnetic and are you sure she wasn't secretly a supervillain were there lasers no lasers no lasers maybe actually maybe I don't know. I don't know the specifics on her her research, but I do know that they were focused on subatomic particles and specifically the hadron characters, so protons, neutrons. She found her way into multiple labs across the world, lecturing and sciencing. This included acting as a visiting scientist at the European Organization for Nuclear Research, known as CERN in Switzerland. It operates the largest particle physics lab in the world. So... She basically played with strongly interacting elementary particles, so those fundamental particles that could not be broken down any further than what they are. 1976, she joined theoretical physics research at the AT&T Bell Labs in New Jersey. It's now known as the Nokia Bell Labs. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know if that sounds much better, but okay. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. She was working to study the best materials to be used in a semiconductor industry, because, you know, phones. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then 1978, she moved to the Scattering and Low Energy Physics Research Department at the labs. Uh, in the 1988, she moved to another department called the Solid State and Quantum Physics Research Department. And in 1991, she left Bell Labs and joined the Rutgers team as faculty. So there she focused on electronic and optical properties of two-dimensional systems. She played with tiny, tiny particles. It basically... A way to innovate technology using faster systems. She was using it as, like, a way to be applied um, to, like, 
electronics, power, and computations, things like quantum computing and power, like, sourcing, stuff like that. Yeah, like, I imagine maybe stuff that's on the actual, like, the hardware yes. in terms of how it's yes. processing. Why, like, like our memory, like, thumb drives, like, 15 years ago, you'd be like, ooh, I've got, like, 250 millibytes, and now it's like, I've got five terabytes, and it's, like, the size of my pinky. Basically, yeah. I mean, it was in the 1980s, so electronics technology was starting to advance in quicker, rapid succession. So that's what she did. That's what she worked for. She was mostly commercial for that time. Uh, Okay. But here's where things get real fun. So because Our Lady Shirley was making so many waves, she was appointed chair of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission by President Clinton. This makes her the first woman and the first African-American to serve in that position. So the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is known as the NRC, and it's concerned with commercial nuclear power plants, essentially. They they create the regulations that most plants follow. And this, is that just specific to the United States for regulations? Yeah, just, just specific okay. to the United States. Basically, the thing that she was doing was she was regulating risk assessment at all of the country's nuclear power plants. So the question she oh, was okay. often asking was, can we make changes to this power plant safely without, say, exposing the workers or nearby public to more radiation than necessary and causing cancer? You know, little things. Yes. Yeah. If we fuck up yeah. a change on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is it? <laughs> what are the numbers we're emitting this year versus the numbers we're emitting last year? Yeah, things like that. So, um, And then she promoted international nuclear safety while she was doing that. So she was working in uh, like South Africa post-apartheid and helping Ukraine attack Chernobyl. So like a decade later, after the fact, it was still emitting super nasty nuclear levels so she was out there trying to be like okay well this is these are the regulations we're using over here would you like help like how can we assist you with this yeah and for those who aren't familiar uh chernobyl was a complete cluster fuck of a nuclear disaster um in russia in, or is it ukraine technically it was ukraine okay yeah um and i believe 1986 it in april so bad so bad yeah um She was chair for about four years, but like most of the scientists I've covered, academia called her back. And in 1999, she took a job as the president of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So there are two locations, Troy, New York, and Hartford, Connecticut. She basically turned that university on its head. She walked in and was like, we're going to make a lot of changes. In a nutshell, as the enacting 18th president of the university, she created this initiative called the Rensselaer Plan. So she had the university focus on things like biotech, life sciences, nanotech, advanced materials, energy, and its effect on the environment and technological media, among other things. So her work secured a ridiculous amount of funding for the school, an increase in student numbers, and a growth of tenured professors and their salaries. She also focused on the quality of student life. Um, She's still working diligently as the president of the institute, focusing also on the race of women enrolled in both undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as the African, like, as well as African-American communities. Um, Mm -hmm. The numbers have gone up, but she says that's not enough. So she also works closely with a school called Harlem Academy. It's a school for students uh, attending first through eighth grade. She welcomes the older students to spend three days a year at RPI to get a feel of the university life and spark more interest in science. And from 2014 to 2017, she still found time to act as chair of the president's intelligence advisory board for President Obama. In this position, she focused on the country's need for advanced manufacturing and national global cybersecurity. For that, 
She was awarded the National Medal of Science by Obama in 2016. So she has been the president of the Institute for like over 20 years now, and she's still devoting her life to the advancement of science in academia today. I picked her because of just the amount of work she did in African-American communities and for women communities as a, as a whole as well. Um, you know, she wasn't just a scientist, but she made sure to put her effort into like social liberties and making sure that there was enough equality for everyone around, like to go around enough resources and um, chances for people if they wanted it. And just like Annie Easley, like, like we were mentioning, recognizing that just because it's been a difficult path for you doesn't mean you can't make it easier for people who are coming after. And I think that's a really wonderful thing for, for someone to do. As always, if you guys have made it this far, you're super awesome, and we really do appreciate it. And if you wanted to show your appreciation, you can do a one-time or monthly donation to our PayPal up on our website. So if you know, people wanted to find out where that was, where can they go? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritefeminist. We have a Twitter. It's at Milena Megan, so that's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. And we have an email. It's info at myfavoritefeminist.com. You can hear us on Spotify, Apple Music, uh, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And please rate, subscribe. It takes two seconds to hit that like button. And in the comment section below, you can let us know your favorite hard-on joke. I don't, ha- I don't have one. Oh, shit. Neither do I. Let's Google hard-on jokes and see what happens. What? <laughs> My phone is occupied. I can't do that. Uh, let's see how bad this decision to Google hard-on joke is. Hold on. Oh, my God. Hard-on joke. Oh, my God. Okay, so I have two jokes for you, then, to make up for it. <laughs> we shouldn't be too hard on people who use toxic building materials. They did a bestest they could. Uh, <laughs> and we're done here. It's been nice having a podcast. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> That's it. We're done. This is oh, how we end. No. Oh, what do you call a turtle with a heart on? A slow poke. Okay, real talk. Have you seen videos of turtles having sex? Yes, I yes I have. It's I actually terrifying. <laughs> oh my god! The way I don't know if it's the uvula in their mouth, but the way that goes in and out, and like they sound like they're hyperventilating. Like you almost want to be like, Mister Turtle, do you want me to get your your your, your ventilator, your inhaler, Mister Turtle? No. Do you need your inhaler? I nod once for yes. You keep nodding. I don't know. They have like this terrible shrill death <laughs> squeal. So that's not the best way to put it. I'll 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 slice in a um like a, a sound. A sound. <laughs> really, the audios are not enough. I happen to come across that gem courtesy of a British comedy panel show called QI. Oh no! And uh, that was one of the little fun facts. <laughs> terrifying absolutely terrifying it's hilarious you and the, the faces but it's it's just it's comedy you gold. need to see it it's you com- really do <laughs> uh so this episode brought to you by turtle sex you're welcome <laughs> uh, so until next time guys we'll see you then bye <laughs> <laughs> cute
turtle sound. So, I mean, quality-wise, they really don't fully captivate. They, they really don't fully ca- captive. I can't. That's not the word. <sighs> Encapsulate? I guess. Or yeah. they don't really... Oh, what's the word? Capture. Capture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. It's fine. Uh, no, we both have degrees. 